0: Thanks for pressing play. The turmoil in the economy and the stock market has created massive turmoil in the crypto world. Uh, And, of course, inflation and many other factors broadly. Startup valuations are coming down significantly. Raising money for startups is getting tough. And Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs are bracing for tough times. Today, we try to make sense of all of it with Sequoia partner, Michelle Bailey. As you know, Sequoia is one of the grand dames of uh, venture tech in Silicon Valley. And Michelle and I go deep on what's really going on with the crypto markets as they face their first real meaningful downturn. Why bad times tend to yield great entrepreneurs and startups. What we can learn from the 1600s and the creation originally of the stock market itself. Why crypto is what Michelle calls a back-end innovation. How much friction and cost there still is in the financial system that new categories can fix. What advice Sequoia is currently giving to their entrepreneurs and founders and a lot more. This is an unfiltered, unfettered, unedited, real dialogue with one of the newer partners at a lion of Silicon Valley, Sequoia. And you should also know that I have known and worked with uh, the folks at Sequoia for over 20 years and have deep respect for their contributions. Also, pay special attention to Michelle's ideas on both investing in crypto and fundraising strategies for entrepreneurs. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different, and we are the number one business dialogue podcast. Now, most business content is mostly obvious, and most business breakthroughs are non-obvious. So if you're a non-obvious thinker, that leads you that leaves you with very little content to consume that are going to that's going to make a difference for you. Category Pirates is the top business mini book newsletter for people who want to create different futures. Recent popular letters include things like the art of fresh thinking, how to make money in a recession, and the big product lie, why minimum viable product, product led growth, and product market fit. Our myths. Uh, now, with all that said, brace yourself for a legendary conversation with Michelle. Hey-ho, let's go. Well, Michelle, it sure is wonderful to see you. Thanks for joining.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. Um, There's a billion things I'd like to ask you, but before I do, um, is there anything that's on your mind, anything going on in your world that you would like to start with?
1: Oh, what isn't going on in the world these days? Uh, It's been a very exciting week in crypto, in the markets. Uh, Of course, there's a lot going on in the world. So I imagine we'll have a, a fulsome list of topics to debate. I'm happy to start wherever you'd like.
0: Okay, well, maybe let's start with something that is on, I think, a lot of our minds, uh, which is what's going on in the crypto markets.
1: So (laughs) it's we could talk for 10 hours about this, which would be interesting to nobody uh, but me. But I think we're at a really interesting moment in crypto for a lot of reasons. We've obviously seen a huge sell-off in tech equities along with a lot of other Changes in the market. And given that most of crypto today really trades like unprofitable technology stocks, that's obviously affected crypto. And crypto has its own unique problems as well. And I think what's interesting is that I've noticed, you know, crypto's been through a lot of bear markets and bull markets or, or you know, winters and summers. And so there is a sense of, oh, okay, well, this is a winter. We've been here before. We know what that's like. We know how to build through it, and all of that's true. There will be a lot of learnings from prior winters that will be useful to founders. But it's also worth reflecting on how this period that we seem to be heading towards is different. You know, Bitcoin was in was released at least. Who knows how long the inventor sat on it, but it was at least released in um, in two thousand eight, right after the last great financial crisis. And so, crypto has grown up for the most part in. A very low US interest rate environment and a continued, you know, 14 year bull market. And so this is likely to be different in the next couple of years in a number of ways. Obviously, the uh, valuation environment is different. The risk appetite for investors is different. Retail energy globally may feel very different. And the talent market will, will also be different in both, you know, positive and potentially negative ways. I think we'll see a lot of shifting in and out of different industries as a lot of companies, you know, try to reach profitability and change the way they hire and the way they're structured. So it's a really interesting time in crypto. And I think um it's there's also a lot of opportunity. Like the the best founders will continue to build the right things and listen to people and make the most of this time as they have. But I think the truly best ones will recognize how different the moment we are in is, how crypto has actually never been here before and adapt to that potential reality.
0: I see. So if I if I understand the timeline correct, and this is what I was thinking, but obviously you follow it a lot more closely than I do, this really is, and of course, there. well, how do you think about it? Is this crypto's first downturn or how do you, do you think COVID was that are there parallels we can draw from what the crypto markets did when the shit was hitting the fan around COVID from an economic perspective? Is this different sort of how do you think about sort of what we're in now? This sort of feels like we're getting ready for a real downturn here in the crypto markets compared to what it's been since its birth in, in 2008?
1: Yeah, I would say it's it will likely feel very different than 2020. I think it's more like, in some ways, 2000, where uh, you saw this incredible excitement for new technology that absolutely would change the world. But there was probably an over-exuberance for too much of that asset type um and not enough focus on quality. And so there were the Amazons, there the Googles, you know, the plenty of great businesses that were swept up in the dot com era that you look back later and you think, you know, that's an incredible company and there was no reason to knock it as hard as it was. But at the same time, thinking that it this will feel like 2020 is very different. You know, crypto has had its winters, but they've been mostly isolated to issues within crypto. So there have been Rises and 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 drops in asset prices, as well as in developer interest and company formation, and some of that has been you know big moments you can remember. There were early collapses of exchanges, like the Mt. Gox you know hack and and collapse. Um, there were other moments where crypto just died off for a while. The you know twenty seventeen bear market that a lot of people remember, and so twenty twenty you saw this you know. Sh- jolt in the market, but then we got trillions of dollars of stimulus. And so that, and we got a lot of people at home, a lot more interest in the equities market, because obviously equities went not crazy. And so there was also more interest in investing, which bled over into crypto. And so what's interesting is you saw many more people become interested and aware of crypto than ever have been before. And so I think what's different is now heading into a rising interest rate environment where there's less investor risk appetite, it's not going to be the quick bounce back and even higher as before. At least it doesn't seem likely. It's always you know really embarrassing to try to predict the future and then you look like an idiot later. But at least the data would suggest that seems less likely. Uh, we don't have more trillions of dollars stimulus to come in at this point. Inflation is a big problem. And so that will affect Crypto. And so, what's different is that crypto hasn't been through a global macro issue yet. It's been through its own rise and fall periods as a sector. But now it's being tied up with way more user interests, many more developers, many more companies, much more regulator attention, and being tied to the rest of the global macro economy. And so, I think that. I think this period has some fundamental differences to past winters.
0: Interesting. And let me ask you the question I think probably a lot of people would love to ask you, which is as an individual investor, Michelle, uh, you know, if you roll the clock back roughly a year or so ago, a lot of people were saying, hey, let's get into crypto now because it looks like inflation will come. Smart people understand that when you manufacture money out of thin air and we knew... you know, I can't get a good number from anybody. I don't know. Does anybody really know how many trillions we pumped into the economy? Um, do you know by any chance?
1: Uh, well, there's the U.S. number and the global number. No, the I U.S. Think US the number. How much number, new
0: uh, Benjamins? How many new Benjamins did we print?
1: I know that I, I believe the, the Fed balance sheet is now up to nine trillion. So I think there was at least five.
0: Yeah, I've heard US four Fed. and I've heard five. Uh, three is definitely doesn't seem right. So you think sort of five-ish?
1: That is my guesstimation if I imagine the the Federal Reserve uh, balance sheet chart that I most recently saw as of Monday.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so the obvious thing is uh, sort of economics 101. If you print $5 trillion, uh, of course, um, our buying power goes down. And buying power is what really matters. You know, inflation, of course, is... A indicator is a harbinger of that. But if a a bag of groceries used to cost me $70 and it now costs me $120, I have, you know, meaningfully less buying power. And so smart people a year or so ago, as this was starting to play out, even during the Trump administration, because Trump started the printing and Biden decided to let the whiskey flow even further. uh, And so uh, smart people were saying, you know, Hey, crypto is a great quote, Hedge against inflation. And here we sit now. And how much of the crypto market's down, Michelle?
1: I don't think of it as crypto overall. Um, the market cap has contracted significantly. Uh, you can look at certain assets, which, you know, depending on where you are, could be down 30% year to date or down 80% year to date. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, there was a belief, especially with Bitcoin. So I think we're still in a period. In, taking taking a step back for a second, we're still in a period where the mass kind of public understanding of crypto is as this giant asset class, and it's similar to every you know early on understanding the internet, and it was just like you know here's all the internet companies. Well, there's huge variation in the quality and, and the functioning of each of those, and so we haven't really gotten to that point where uh, a lot of people are kind of segregating very thoughtfully what's in crypto. So Bitcoin, in particular, to your point, should was it theorized to be a hedge against inflation? And there are a lot of people who have very thoughtful arguments for why that is still the case. It is, you know, a uniquely novel invention. To our knowledge, we have never as a species had a digital asset that is effectively as best as we can guaranteed to not inflate. And so what's that used for? Hopefully as a hedge against inflation, but to the point you're getting at. Bitcoin has not at all traded as a hedge against inflation. It has been extremely correlated to technology stocks. And it looks much more like an unprofitable technology stock, partly because people can't quite, you know, mining people are still wrapping their heads around how to think about it. Do I think about it like an equity? Do I think about it like a commodity? What are the demand and supply drivers? Um, And so we're we're not seeing the thesis that many people had play out in this exact moment where it should have.
0: Yes. Interesting. And so as an individual investor, Michelle, if I was one of your best friends and I said, Hey, Michelle, I mean, you are literally on the inside track of the the bleeding edge of innovation in this space. Should I pour more of my money into Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera right now? Should I increase the amount in my portfolio that is in the crypto space? <laughs> and I know you're not a stock picker or a timer or any of that, but um, no, you know, God. there's a lot of particularly <laughs> native analogs who are going nine or nine or seeing crypto bullshit, da, 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 da <laughs> And stocks and assets overall are one of these funny things that when they go on sale, nobody wants to buy them. And so, uh, you know, and I don't want to overly put you on the spot, but should I be buying Bitcoin? Should I be buying crypto?
1: So I certainly would not deign to give any financial advice. I am dramatically underqualified to do so. The advice that I genuinely give my family and friends and have as long as I've been working in crypto has been your financial situation is incredibly different and unique from everyone else's. So whatever amount of your, you know, savings or portfolio that you think this is the piece you know, account for all of your expenses, give yourself two years of runway. I'm very conservative in that way. I don't think that six months of cash, you know, runway is enough. I think at least two years. Then whatever amount you want to invest, invest across innovation and, you know, all the classic stuff you're told, bonds, equities, and then think about, okay, what piece do I want to have? Very high potential return, but also am comfortable losing every dollar. and that's the amount that you should put in crypto. And so, uh, you know, start, start small, start slow and go from there. And as you do more and more work, you know, there are a lot of people who are incredibly convicted about the space and, and feel like they deeply understand it. You could decide you want to do more. But if you're kind of looking for a passing allocation to something, that is how I would think about it.
0: Great answer Michelle thank you. So so maybe to just summarize I <laughs> a should a very
1: sober answer.
0: <laughs> yes, a very sober answer. I would love to hear the very drunk answer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's the same, (laughs) you know, people think as a crypto investor, they're like, you must have your entire net worth in crypto. And I'm like, no, I don't think that that's true. I wouldn't do that for for Apple, even if it would have made me look like a genius later. Uh, It's just not practical for how you live your life, at least for me.
0: And so the way I should, as an individual investor, the way you want me to think about uh, it is good portfolio theory. And maybe this way I would think about investing in a venture fund or investing in a startup directly. You know, if you invest $100,000 in a startup personally, you got to know that over 90% of startups fail. The likelihood you get that money back is very low. And yes, there's a chance it could turn into 5 million or some giant number.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: If I want to have exposure to crypto, I should do good portfolio management, essentially dollar cost average. The, way I, the same way I would if I'm buying an S&P 500 fund or the same way I would if I'm buying Apple stock or what have you.
1: Yeah, and I would also think that the, the risk reward may be even higher than your traditional uh, S&P 500 companies. So that's the, the thing to think about is it's, I would, I would personally view it as potentially even riskier than buying Apple. And so that's something that people need to think about. Now that doesn't make me a bear on crypto technology. There's this expectation that everyone investing in crypto, again, is just a you know, bull all the time. And I personally tire of that because a lot of th- things have tremendous technology potential. That doesn't mean it's a good price today. You can look back at the 2000s era and you can take an amazing company like Cisco or Amazon, for instance. They're both great examples. Let's just use the Amazon one. You know, it traded Alfred Lynn, a, p- a partner in Sequoia, who I have the great pleasure of working with, um, uses the Amazon example all the time. In the 2000s era, it traded up to, I think, 113 a share and dropped to $5 a share in the crash. It took Amazon growing revenues from a billion to around $25 billion over the next decade just to reach back to its $113 a share. And that's just because things get overvalued. And so it doesn't mean that the technology is not useful. It certainly doesn't mean that Amazon's not an incredible company, that the internet is an incredibly exciting innovation, that e commerce is important in changing the way we live and work. But things can get into bubbles. And so when I hear people say, oh, well, you know, crypto is a future, Bitcoin is a future, so I'm going to buy in now, that's not always proven to be a, a great investment strategy. There is a risk reward and a, and a pricing question that goes along with the quality of the technology or the business around it.
0: Yes. And, and here's one, let me test this one with you. Uh, in today's world, so there's been a massive blow up at Peloton. And I think we all understand the reasons. The reasons seem pretty clear. Um, and so, you know, fire the CEO and all this stuff's going on. And now they, people say it's a dog and it's this and it's that. Now, look, I don't know if that company will survive what it's going through. However, to your point on Amazon, Michelle, if you take it, if you zoom back out and you say, hmm, does a home-based digital workout platform make sense long-term that is, that is native digital? Fuck yeah, it does. All day long, right? And so will yes. they recover? I don't know. I think they will likely because we often see category queens and kings collapse in situations like this and then come back. And in the consumer space, it happens all the time. It happened to Lululemon. It happened to CrossFit. You know, it's happened to a lot of these brands. And so they have the pole position in terms of becoming the uh, dominant player in the category. And they are going through an Amazon-like situation. And will they come out 10 years from now? I don't know. But 10 years from now, what I do know is native digital home uh, workout training uh, programs are going to be more important in ten years than they are today. Does does that triangulate with you?
1: Absolutely. I think it's a great example, and you could, you know, have a really interesting conversation exactly to your question of is Peloton the winner Is something else the winner? Do I want to bet on the category? And all we're we're both saying is there's also the price component. You know, it, you if for the for those ten years, if you bought the top of Amazon, you wouldn't have made any money, even though you absolutely picked the correct company. That was a phenomenal company. So, and then of course, for the next 10 years, you would have had a 200x increase, but <laughs> it's, there is some element to needing, uh, to look at long-term average multiples to understand whether things are fairly valued and to assess the risk reward. And it's a, it's a different question than just, is this the right trend that I believe will be around in 10 years, which I think has gotten some people into some some troubles.
0: Yes. Now, maybe let's go to the kind of startup ecosystem and and the innovation in the space and entrepreneurship in the space. Uh, Your firm, Sequoia, I've known for a very long time. And my sort of uh, assessment of Sequoia is that the firm has a demonstrated track record of investing regardless of sort of public market cycles. And of course, Today, public markets and private markets are much more correlated than they were 25 years ago. Um, But that said, um, Sequoia has a history of investing when the shit's hitting the fan. You know, Google's probably a great example. I know there's lots of others. And according to a lot of research that's been published, I was sort of digging through some of it again recently. Uh, The HBR has done great work around analysis with some of the top professors and consulting firms. And if you sort of my synthesis of a lot of the research on uh, downturns and recessions is approximately 10% of companies actually come out of them stronger. And I think there's an argument to be made uh, with data that says that downturns are actually a, a, well, they come with all sorts of tough shit. They're actually not a bad time to be uh, starting a company and, or kind of getting forward on your skis from an innovation product development, category development uh, perspective. And so uh, I, with all that said, Michelle, I'd be very curious to kind of get your assessment of the crypto entrepreneurial space now.
1: Yes. So very well said. in Sequoia's perspective, which again is the 50 years of experience of which I can claim no credit, but I'm happy to learn from and distill, <laughs> uh, is that you're absolutely right, which is Sequoia has a very unique perspective, having invested through multiple market cycles, as well as technology cycles. And so the takeaways from a lot of the people much wiser than myself have been a couple things. One is that great founders come out during these periods, not necessarily right away, but over the next two years, because they are not doing this because it is the hot thing to do and their friends think it's cool and they want a big valuation. They're doing it because they genuinely have some type of business to build because otherwise, why would you be here? It's the absolute worst time. So it's a very great time to find exceptional founders doing it for the right reasons. Sometimes people call them missionaries and not mercenaries. And then I also think for existing companies, these moments of adversity have often created some of the biggest opportunities to build fundamental product advantages. And modes and you know, great foundations for companies that have propelled them even for the next several decades. So Rulof Bota, who, you know, uh, is you know senior steward of Sequoia and uh, formerly was the CFO of PayPal very early on, remembers a period at PayPal where they had made their plan during a market environment that was prioritizing growth. And they were building a network effects business where they were growing as fast as they could to get to a to a scale where they could start to do things. And he remembers Michael Moritz coming in and saying, the fundraising environment has changed. You have to, yeah, completely pivot. We need to fund the business with customers and not expect VC infusions. And that period of time forced them to build fraud models that would be incredibly you know, useful assets to PayPal. To build out their pricing structure, to start charging, and to ultimately, very quickly, in a matter of months, build, you know, through incredible work and working every weekend, the foundations that would take PayPal through IPO and now to become this, you know, incredibly legendary company. And there are so many examples like this. You think of DoorDash, which was, went through periods of very tough fundraising where it was extremely unfashionable to back delivery companies. People debated whether they would work at all, whether the union economics would be positive and that force DoorDash to go into the suburbs to shave minutes off every single delivery. And those things are core reasons as to why it continues to gain market share where other players are, are losing it. Um, and so there are so many examples to this where actually, for the best founders, it's to have the bar raised actually does them a favor. Because when the environment is too easy, everyone does well. And when the environment gets harder, the stronger can actually show just how much better they were than the alternatives. Um, So I think it's a very exciting time for the founders who are willing to jump into the arena.
0: Yes. Thank you. Very well said, Michelle. And I agree. And, you know, as somebody who's lived through a ton of these cycles, you see it every time. And I remember back in the when the dot com bubble blew up, um, the traffic situation changed pretty quickly. Right. So if you were driving from Silicon Valley to San Francisco in 1999, it was a bitch. Right. And in 2001, yeah. you were cruising. <laughs> and we joked back then, Michelle, that um, uh, B2B stood for back to Boston and B2C stood for back to Chicago.
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
0: And while, you know, there's real damage and pain and suffering that I don't want to, um, yes. you know, make fun of, at the same time, when I hear what you're saying and I think about, you know, reflecting on my own experiences, thinking about the storied history of your firm. I hate to say it this way, but it's how it is in my brain. There's a part of me that kind of likes it because it flushes out the posers. It flushes out the um, mercenaries. Right. And crypto has had a lot of mercenaries. It it. it you know, you can't go on YouTube without seeing some hustle porn star, get rich, quick asshole going, take my crypto course. Right. <laughs> and so there's a part of me and, you know, there's a lot of shysters and, you know, I don't have to tell you, you, you live in this world. And so, so the flushing yep. out of all the sort of mercenaries and some people who are maybe not as deeply tied to some core values <laughs> as others, I, that is a positive.
1: Yeah. I'd absolutely agree. And I, I think many people are excited for that for crypto because it's has historical precedent at a number of different times. You know, you can, the dot com is the most technology relevant one, but you can even go back. I think of the invention of the stock market as in Amsterdam as a really interesting time where we had business innovation with these new companies that would travel overseas and mostly steal assets from other countries and bring them back and sell them in Europe. Um, but that was a whole new business, you know, these uh, Dutch East India co et cetera, coupled with a financial innovation, which was the idea of a joint stock company. What is a stock? And there was not a lot of clear regulation or even rules or policies around what you could offer a stock in right so there were reports of people trying to sell shares of sunshine and you had the tulip bubble and all of these things that different historians debate how you know overstated the stories have become today versus realistic but what i think the the broad takeaway you can look at is when we have these periods of time where there is fundamental innovation there is something that has actually changed that is really useful and there's also a um both technology and in in the business side, but we haven't quite solidified the framework for how it should work, you end up attracting both the true technologists or the people there for the missionary reasons, as well as a lot of people there for the wrong reasons. And you do have to go through one of these periods exactly as you're saying to let the tide go out and see who's swimming with no pants on, as Buffett and others have said, And wash that out of this space. And I think that will be fundamentally so much better for crypto, because hopefully it will leave a group of people who are more focused and committed to building things that, of consequence, that solve problems, rather than, as you're saying, you know, the relentless, ridiculous YouTube, you know, videos we've seen.
0: Yes. And I was just checking to make sure I got the date right. Uh, it looks like if uh, if uh, anti-Google is telling me the right number, uh, the stock market was invented in 1611. Does that sound right to you, Michelle?
1: That does sound right. I carry around Amsterdam in the 1600s in my head. And I think the bubble was later than that. The The Dutch East Indico went for years, I believe. Um, but it was also before there was any transparency. <laughs> about what you had to report to your public shareholders. Right. I mean, there was no FASB.
0: There was no no Sarbanes-Oxley. There was no, none of that. There weren't auditors. Right.
1: (laughs) No. And so the, you know, quickly ran out of cash at the end and people were like, wait, there's no cash in this business. And you know, the stock plummeted because no one knew ahead of time. It's not like today where you can watch the cash reserves and happen. So, It's a really interesting time in history, I think. Uh, I think about it a lot related to where we are in crypto.
0: Interesting. And so, one of the things about that, one of our favorite expressions around here is everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. And so, I think some people have a sort of, it's easy. Let me say it this way it's easy to forget that in this case, the stock market, currency, money, is a human invention. It got made up. A bunch of people decided there, to your point, you said earlier, the frameworks for crypto are not complete or solidified. or and, and so it took a long time for the frameworks around accounting standards and investing standards and government oversight of that to make sure that people weren't shysters and, and all of that stuff to build into the world that we now understand. Human beings Created that. And so it's interesting to me that with the launch of crypto and then where we sit now, you know, a lot of people shit on it. And what they seem to be lacking is an understanding that um, there is a new model here being created for a native digital world. Because analog in the case of crypto, analog money makes no sense in a native digital world. And so you and the entrepreneurs that you back, and of course, many others are trying to build all of this stuff out. And, and in that sense, and I don't mean this negatively, I mean it positively, this is how innovation yes. happens. It's getting made up as we go here, right? Yes. But why Absolutely. don't more people understand that, Michelle?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, maybe it's goes back to when we were all kids and we thought, Everyone had it figured out. And then the more and more you live and you realize everyone's just making it up and it's very shocking and a little bit destabilizing to realize, Uh, but also very empowering because you think, oh, okay, we'll just make the best choices we can and go from there.
0: So tell me about why you and and Sequoia, you know, you've, best I can tell, you've made a massive commitment to uh, crypto, blockchain, what some people now call Web3, which I want to get to with you because people are pooping on that now too. And, uh, <laughs> NFTs and DOGs and IUDs and all these things. Right. And so <laughs> tell me a little bit about why such a massive focus for you personally and the firm overall on this space at this time.
1: Yeah. A couple reasons. So for the firm level, I think to your point about the natively digital money and a natively digital financial system, what does that look like? It's actually been something that several different Sequoia companies have inched the world closer to. So you think about PayPal in the early days, it's a very similar use case. And it couldn't solve it with crypto then. Crypto Bitcoin wasn't invented. We didn't have the intense cryptography advances that went into this new era of crypto. But it was a similar question of, it seems like it should be a lot easier to move money online in a digital way how do we do that? Because the internet is growing. People want to sell things online. And so you have the beginnings of the internet taking over not just the information networks in our lives, but also the commerce networks and the monetary networks and the financial networks. And I think you can also see a lot of companies chipping away at this, trying to digitize pieces of the financial system, whether they're Square or Stripe or etc. You know, th- this is actually part of it's very rare that something brand new pops out of nowhere, right? It's usually a problem that humans have been trying to solve in different ways for a long time. And so we've been seeing different attempts at this, many of which have led to great companies. And what's different now is we have a fundamentally new technology that enables approaching this question in a very different way. And... Stanny, the founder of Aave, uh, which is a lending DeFi protocol, he also has a number of other projects he's working on. But he likes to say that crypto is innovating on the back end of finance, which is different than how some of the prior iterations of what does the collision of internet and money look like. They've been more from a user point of view or a merchant point of view. They've been more front-end innovations. How do I take credit cards? How do I move money here to there? And crypto... Because the fundamental innovation is a distributed ledger or distributed database, it's a back-end innovation that's now trying to build forward. And you can see the issues with that in the criticisms, which are very valid, about many horrible aspects of the front-end user experience to a lot of crypto um, because it's it's eating the back forward. And so I think for Sequoia... You know, there are people who have spent a lot of time in crypto. So my partner Sean McGuire, who leads a ton of our crypto work and is a great thinker. He's been thinking about in, you know, working in crypto circles since you know, very early Bitcoin. And so there are people that have spent their lives in it. I've been lucky to have friends, which is my kind of personal journey, who I really came to it through engineers, which was I think very helpful for me because I didn't come to it with the same Bias as someone who discovered it from a trashy social media ad. I had friends who were engineers. I had a friend who was an engineer at Ripple. And I remember our first real conversation about Bitcoin and how it worked was in 2015 for me. And being really interested in how this database would work and what it meant, but also being very sure that the government would, would probably try to shut that down and being very surprised your really latest when that wasn't the case. And then I was at McKinsey in 2017, where the two biggest uh, buzzwords were AI and blockchain. And so I thought, what are these buzzwords? I would really like to know what we're actually talking about here. And so just spent nights and weekends myself trying to research, understand. And that was also around the time of Ethereum and the Ethereum ICOs. And um, the group I worked in at Google ended up having some people who became very important in crypto. um, The artists behind CryptoPunks matt and john worked uh they worked on the android uh characters at the creative lab and my good friend cal was the first designer and continues to be the design lead at unisoft so i was lucky to interact with crypto through builders who were just interested in the technology and what it could mean for all sorts of things and interested in artists who are interested in it um for its impact in digital art, which I think it has a tremendous impact already, that's often understated for digital artists. And so, I think when you couple that together, uh, a more sober, you know, just genuine interest in the technology and what it holds, coupled with the Sequoia macro trend view of, hey. A lot of companies have been trying to work to just digitize more and more and more of the financial system over time. This is, this is part of an important trend that's propelled a lot of innovation is why we see there to be a lot of opportunity for the next 20 years for crypto.
0: Thank you for that. Now, I would like to bounce a theory off you and yes. have you tell me what you think of it uh, as candidly as, as, as you can. So there's sort of a couple parts. The first part is in the world today, we hear a lot about digital transformation. And as a category designer, I study languaging. You know, one of the things I say to people a lot, I say it to myself a lot is listen to the words, right? So transformation means I take a thing that is a certain way. Now I make some change to it. And it's some combination of what it was and a bunch of new stuff. Fair? Yes. So there are some people who think that crypto is, to the point I think you were just on, a sort of evolution, a transformation. Um, I disagree with that. And the reason I disagree with it is, uh, in the beginning, people said that it was a quote currency and you still hear that term a lot but somewhere along the line over the last few years you started to hear it is a quote store of value which of course is exactly what the US dollar is right um and so what what i think's going on now is not transformation of money or transformation of the financial system it's actually creation of a new native digital way of transacting and quote storing value and if you if you flip your brain from because here's the fundamental problem you can't create the future with a backward looking lens right so if i say okay the financial system is the way that it is shit's going digital let's make the financial system digital Okay, that's like what we did originally when movie cameras were invented, which is we we tape-recorded a play. And then one day we woke up and went, hmm, the new technology allows for a whole new level of innovation and creativity. It's dumb to tape-record a play. What if we create content that specifically takes advantage of the technology? And they moved from transformation to creating filmed entertainment. And so my point is... Um, the innovation that I see coming out of the companies that you folks back, it feels more and others, of course, feels more like creation than transformation. That is to say, people are sitting there going, what are the frameworks? How do we make this work? And how do we envision a different future that's native digital from the ground up, as opposed to drag analog money into the digital world? And so I'm curious as to your reaction to all that, Michelle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I identify with that a lot. Um, I think the people who are talking about transformation, which I agree, doesn't quite feel right. But if I empathize with what they're what I think they're trying to say, it's that we're still solving very similar problems. How do I exchange value for as little additional cost as possible? in the same way that early internet was how do i exchange information for as little additional cost as possible right if it used to take me letters and someone driving over there or on a horse or whatever then it was telegrams then it was books and then it was libraries and yellow pages and all these things now the cost of accessing information of sharing it is dramatically you know orders of magnitude decrease which is also why we are flooded with orders of magnitude more information because it's simply just gotten You know, insanely cheaper to do that. And for exchanging value, that's still really not the case. It's, you know, we've had these important innovations, whether it's PayPal, Stripe, you know, whatever you want to talk about, that are chipping away at it, trying to bring in efficiencies, but we still have these odd inefficiencies because they're going in and out of a physical or analog, if you want to call it, system. And I think, so when people think about the transformation, the part that I think is, Sort of right is saying we're still doing fundamental human needs. I need to get this value over to you in exchange for this in a much more modern way. But the point that you're making about creation, I think, is also very valid because we are not, it's not incremental, which is one of the challenges for crypto. It's a very fundamental shift. It's totally different backend database, you know, huge way of Make, trying to do this decentralized versus centralized I mean the, the number of shifts that it has created to your point are dramatic and so there will be a lot that will have to be created net new to make that work it, it cannot be a slow incremental change like there's no quick you know software I'm gonna kick out this software and add in this software to now be able to uh, make my entire financial system decentralized that that can't happen. And so because it's such a fundamental change, there is, there will be a lot of creation at the infrastructure layer, the application layer, the regulatory layer, the user experience layer, the merchant layer, you know, all of these layers will need to be created that new. Yes, Um, And that's a, a lot of opportunity, but it's also a challenge for crypto because it means that adoption may not look as speedy as some of the other more recent changes to those systems.
0: Awesome. Okay, so let's go there. Let me bounce another one off you and see how, how, how it goes. So for uh, almost a year now, we've been talking about and writing a lot about in Category Pirates, the bifurcation between native analogs and native digitals, and the aha that best we could tell very few native analogs have had, which is native analogs are the last native analogs. And that native digital is a person who's actually 180 degrees different than native analog. And the the simple analogy we use is if you're native analog, as I am, and I have a very rich digital life, I mean, I always have. I worked in the technology industry for 36 freaking years. Like I have, I'm a very, you know, digitally connected native analog. However, my primary experience of life is analog. And if given a choice, of course, you and I are doing this over the internet, but if given a choice, I'd rather sit down in person with you. And I remember having a native digital on the podcast and I asked her what her what just happened. And she said we had an in-person conversation. And of course, for me, we didn't have an in-person conversation. We had a, a over-the-internet conversation. And therein lies the difference. My primary as a native analog and all native analogs, our primary experience is analog first. And the degree to which we have digital lives is that the digital part of our life is an adjunct to it. And it's become an increasingly important adjunct But uh, the reality is analog first. And you see this in big business, you know, where where CEOs say, OK, on such and such date, everybody has to come back to work. And nobody comes back to work. And the aha, of course, is that if you're native analog, work is a physical place. And if you're native digital, work is a digital space. And, and so a native digital person, their primary experience of life is digital first and their analog life is actually an adjunct or a sidecar to their digital life. And, you know, <laughs> the simple evidence I have of it is where how do most people meet their spouse? Most people meet their spouse in a native digital way. It's the most important relationship you have. And if you don't have digital game. You don't got game (laughs) and you're not going to meet someone, right? So anyway, uh, with all of that said, um, the poo-pooing I hear is mostly from native analogs. And so to get back to your point, is what we have to see, and, and, and here's my other assumption, you tell me if this is right or wrong, is that if I'm native digital, digital stores of value aren't of course and physical analog money is stupid and so uh, the upper end of native digitals today in america are you know 35 36 years old they are more than 50 percent of the country and if you are working in corporate america today there's a i forget the exact number michelle but it's a like 60 something percent likelihood you're working for a millennial and so with all that said, is what we're just gonna see here is the native digitals are gonna embrace a em, embrace a digital first approach, like they do in everything else. And the native analogs are gonna disappear. And so uh when I'm gone and and you're not, <laughs> that's just how it's gonna be. Is that what we have to wait for? Does any of that make sense?
1: I think it does, yeah. I think the relentless march towards the digitization of our world is sometimes sad, sometimes happy, sometimes neutral, but it's certainly happening, whether you'd like it or not. And there are some fundamental reasons for that. You touched on a lot of the cultural reasons, which are important. But there are also even if you take out the cultural components of how did I first interact with this? you know What's my first understanding of dating? Maybe I'm used to it being on an app versus in person or to you alluded to. There are also some reasons why it exists that way. So we talk about the, you know, the dramatic decrease in the cost of sharing information or creating information, the dramatic decrease, hopefully, in exchanging value across the world, which a lot of people need to do, the dramatic decrease in the cost of communicating, I mean, like, think about the cost. If we texted the way that we do today, in a system of letters with you know who knows what costs per quill and ink, I mean, it, you just couldn't do it. So at, at the frequency that we do today, so there are fundamental reasons why it is better, uh, and it, it is not worth standing in front of that train. I don't think it ends well. That said, I also understand the criticisms that certain attempts at some of these things are not well thought out or not thoughtful or maybe not good for people or not done in the right way. So I think there's certainly individual things to poo-poo or to argue with or um, not want to partake in. But your broader point about this train is on the tracks, it's been running, it only accelerates... I think is well-founded.
0: Thank you for that. The, maybe one other thing, uh, at least on my mind, about all of this is you did mention earlier cost. And one of the things that we talked about in the early days of the internet was uh, this term disintermediation. And and you don't hear the term anymore, but the reality is, you know, if you think about a simple example, m- most people understand direct-to-consumer business models, Right. And the reason you do that is you take some layers out of the distribution chain, you disintermediate them, and that way the the provider and the customer go direct. And so to your point, friction comes out and the cost of transacting, the cost of moving the value store, I want to buy something from you, you want to sell something to me, goes away. And so the interesting thing in the financial system is there are a lot of intermediaries who really are kind of toll takers. You know, they don't add much value, just a little bit. But the reality is we've developed a system over time for a bunch of reasons where there's a lot of toll takers who uh, today it's technology based. So they flip some switch, they take some percentage. And because they have billions of dollars flowing through whatever component of their Part of the financial system is these toll takers, you know, take a little bit of our money. And the interesting thing about toll takers, of course, is they are parasites, right? They are not creating value. They're attaching to people or com- and or companies that create value and and sucking a little bit off them for a very little bit of value. And from the early days of the Internet, one of the most exciting things has been the ability to disintermediate so that people can do what they want together. And you, you, I think you mapped out the evolution beautifully from information to transactions and so forth. And so I guess with all that said, A, what's your assessment of that? And B, how much more disintermediation, that is to say, uh, getting rid of toll takers so that people who want to transact can do it directly for, as you said a few moments ago, the least amount of cost possible. How much more of that do we have to take out of the system?
1: It's a great question. And the short answer is a lot. So if you think about the cost to send, it's, it's used a lot related to crypto, but the cost to send money overseas, whether they're for remittances or payments for goods or something else, and actually get that money out in your native currency on the other side is still really high. And in a world where, to your point, You know, we've grown digital natives. We're used to being able to now send texts and whatever information we want across borders without that limitation. The fact that there are very hefty fees often being paid by people who would be the most grateful to not pay them uh, is a tremendous business opportunity because I think that's an inefficiency that is no longer very well founded. It's not as simple. To solve as some people would like it to be, you know, and that's also an area where you need cooperation for regulators who see the potential for the technology and are willing to give new technology providers access, licenses to be able to legally deliver a potentially 10x cheaper solution to move value over borders. Um, but there are a lot. You can look at it in remittances, you can look at it in the cost of credit cards um you can look at it in the cost of settlement times if you think about our whole stock systems you know equities still moves on a T-2 settlement that's actually because while we're quickly moving around the you know numbers on a screen those are only the digital representations of the numbers and there are huge businesses that actually go around and true everything up and that has a lot of cost and so what happens if you remove that and the digital representations are the asset? And when you move it, you move it. Now, there will be new intermediaries. There will be new technology providers. So there's a new opportunity. There always is. But I think there are a huge number of areas in finance, in the world of uh, arts, etc., where you can look at a system and say, we're doing a lot of extra steps. Uh, to either maintain or true up something that is trying to have a digital interaction and we're filling it with all these extra analog because we actually live in the analog world. What if we had a fully digital system for this? How much more efficient would that be? How would that work?
0: And, and to that end, there is sort of the um, mechanics of moving the money around that you could argue the toll takers have had some value with because if you wanted to send somebody... Uh, money from uh, where you and I are in California to China or to Africa or to the Middle East or pick a place. Um, That was a very hard thing. And so the people who could help you do that, you would pay that for. But to your point, you know, WhatsApp and Skype show up and I can literally press a button and talk to a friend or a loved one on the other side of the planet. I'm like, well, why can't I send them a hundred bucks? The other part of this is uh, something I think a lot of people don't understand about the friction that needs to be disintermediated is that time friction. Yes. So there's a lot of businesses that are pretty shitty businesses. Most toll taking businesses are shitty. They have very low margins. And so what a lot of the toll takers do is they will hold on to the money for half a day, a day, a week, whatever it is earn that little bit of interest for that little bit of time off of our money to improve their margins. And so there's a toll that they take for doing the thing, but there's this also this thing where they hold on to it. I had a situation recently, the details aren't important, but the net of it is the provider in this case said it was going to take 2 weeks to move money and I was like Two weeks. What, what are you fucking talking about? Right. And the bottom <laughs> line is we want to earn two weeks of interest on your money. And so I think many of us find that seriously irritating. But even more importantly, I think, to your point earlier, Michelle, native digitals expect to press a button and food comes and and, and Ubers and Lyfts come and we can talk to anybody in the world. and And, and, and at a very low cost, I mean, WhatsApp free, right? And so it, this this paradigm of, A, it costs a lot of money to do this, and B, you're going to manufacture a waiting time so that you can make money off of my money, you know, to quote the Big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man.
1: <laughs> Perfect quote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the I, it's absolutely right. I think when you read the original Bitcoin white paper, I at least get a lot of that energy from it. Uh, yes, there is you know, really interesting cryptography and thoughts about how to actually solve the double spend problem in it. But I think the timing of it coming out right after the great financial crisis and being a system where it was trying to enable people to be able to just exchange value with each other without relying on a third party is symptomatic of the problem that I think faces a lot of finance since the great financial Crisis, which is an erosion of trust. And so we now live in a system where I think by and large, people have less trust in their financial products and the businesses they use than more. And I think that's a hard spot to be in. But that is what fuels a lot of the innovation around crypto. And of course, a lot of it is faulty and not trustworthy either. But a lot of the genuine innovation is trying to solve this trust problem. And you can also see it in the discussions around censorship and the media that we use, where people are hoping that something more decentralized could reduce the temptations of someone or the pressures of someone in control of a service like that, that Many people believe, you know, feel should be a public good to censor or control certain things. And these are age-old questions for humanity. Like the idea that we're going to fundamentally solve it and not, never have this problem again with wanting new technology is sort of ridiculous. But at the same time, we do make step change improvements. And I think that core trust problem, the desire for transparency, the desire for more control, the desire to be better to users and customers, to feel like, you want to understand where your money is going, how it works, et cetera, is, you know, some a huge driving force for a lot of the innovation here.
0: Thank you for that. Now, um, Sequoia has an interesting track record of kind of calling the ball and ringing the bell. And of course, most famously with the slide deck that changed the world RIP good times back in the day. And so uh, what advice uh, are you personally and, and the firm overall giving entrepreneurs right now?
1: We are talking with our founders about the change in the valuation environment, how public equities affect them, and you know, their founders are a very diverse group of people. Some of them they're innately aware of this and fully understand it, and some of them come from a different background where they're less uh, focused on something that might seem very different, distant from them, like the stock market. So I think the first piece of advice that we've given is just understand the new reality we are in. We're in a rising interest rate environment. The pendulum has shifted from growth at all costs to we want to see profitability. And there's logic for that. It's not just mood, but it certainly has impact on mood. And so number one, just embrace the reality. If, if you've been planning your business in a potentially very logical way, you know, growth at all costs. Now the world is different. We need to plan differently and we need to fund the business, not through additional equity, most likely, but through the, the, uh, you know, fees and revenues earned from your customers. The second, um, piece that we've talked a lot about is, Trim where you can, most organizations, just like your own budget or life, you have things that you have accumulated over time that you probably don't need, and that's not always headcount. It can be you know a lot of different areas where it could be product initiatives. you know we thought we were going to do ten different new product roadmap initiatives this year. no, let's do one. so trimming focusing on what's really important and getting to that and then. Not pulling back in core product. So that was one of Sequoia's core lessons from 2008 was that the companies that doubled down on their core product. So again, not the roadmap with 10 different new ideas on it, but the core product. You can use this time to soak up some of the best talent that may be moving around and to invest more in product than in sales and marketing or other areas. You could probably come out of this very well positioned where you've put more distance between you and your competition. And so it's about using this time to come out, as you said, you know, one of those 10% companies that comes out even stronger, not letting a good crisis go to waste and not misjudging the reality that the, funda- the environment has fundamentally changed. So if you don't recognize that and you continue earning a lot of money and growing at all costs, that will not lead to a good outcome. Yes. But you can also take advantage of it and play your cards right, and come out the other side even stronger than before.
0: Yes. Now, here's a, a, an interesting thing uh, from a Sequoia Venture Capital perspective. Literally yesterday, Michelle, I was on a call with uh, two founders of an absolutely legendary company. The company is on fire. Uh, the company is growing at you know, like ridiculous percentages, and they're cash flow positive. And they have been for several quarters now. And just before, like this, I would, my sense is, you tell me if this is your sense, the shit is starting to hit the fan. It hasn't quite hit the fan yet, but you could see there from here. And so just as the shit was starting, just before the shit was starting to get near the fan, so to speak, <laughs> these folks were uh, going to go do a fundraise. They, they've created this category. It is on fire. It absolutely worked. Everything's working. They have the, they have the great problem, which is how do I ship fast enough? It's the problem that every entrepreneur wishes for. Right. And so they were going to do this fundraise to fund growth and to build more capability and all the things that you would expect a, a smart entrepreneurs to do. And then the situation to your point, understand the environment, it changes radically. And so we had this call yesterday. They gave us an update on where they are with the fundraise. And here's what they said. We're not doing the fundraise. It's a dumb idea. We're worth way more than anyone will pay us right now from a valuation perspective. And we're cash flow positive. And the banks and the investment banks are lining up to do all sorts of interesting things with us from operating lines to low interest loans to convertible debt to all these things. Uh, and so they're now looking at that potentially um, whatever they do is going to be a much smaller dollar number than what they were originally thinking from the fundraise. And because they're cash flow positive and they're growing so quickly, you know, they're in that wonderful position. Um, and so here's my question with sort of premier uh, startups like that they are now not going to come talk to venture capitalists because they know what the answer is going to be. And so should we expect there to be a slowdown in the number of deals that top tier VCs do because top tier entrepreneurs are saying, well, my company's worth a lot more than this. These are bad times. I'm going to ride them out and I'll go back to the private capital markets when things are better. Virgo, less uh, venture capital financings. Is that going to happen, or what do you think is going to happen over the next, you know, few months here or few years?
1: It's always hard to answer because every business actually is quite different. So I'll just you know say that disclaimer. It really depends. I think the broad principles are the there are a number of investors, especially late stage or crossover investors, who are at least currently much less active in the market. So if you were a later stage company and you were banking on a really large in- round from a crossover investor, that has probably changed the The cast of characters that are still playing is much smaller. and Sequoia is certainly still open for business. We're still meeting with companies. We're still planning to invest in great businesses. But there are certainly fewer players at the table. I would also say for companies that are growing really well and are profitable. That choice over how to control your destiny is a wonderful one to have, and so the founder should make the best decision based on what capital sources are available to them, what they need to grow, what they need. you know the answer may be no debt at all. It may be just continuing to raise their cash flow positive, you know take margin down a little bit if you can, and invest that in product. That's the freedom that is afforded to you when you've earned a sustainable business. That is cash flow positive. I would also say that depending on the business type, you may want to look at your forecast and think about different scenarios because there are some businesses that are absolutely valid to forecast based on the last several years. And there are other businesses where that would be riskier because there are things that are fundamentally different in the consumer environment or even certain parts of the enterprise budget that may look quite different and so you have to really assess where you are depending on where demand comes in how cash flow positive would you be and so i think being really thoughtful about the scenario planning for this period will will do well for founders and then i also think the thing is that it there's a lot about valuation it's not the valuation i want you know i think it's so hard but there are so few companies that end up being legendary companies because they were valued at whatever the heck sticker price at whatever the heck round. It's just like irrelevant to the long-term success of your company. And so the the environment may be different. But if you look at long-term averages, and you look at you know your terminal value that you think you can achieve and where you are, you always deserve a fair price. You should never be undercut it should never be you know something unfair but i think having the expectations that 2021 where there were many players that were underwriting to just consistently very high multiples that we may not see for another decade is also not true is not helpful because you are likely to judge every offer as you know dramatically different than your expectation when it, when in reality that that may be the math for your category you know and so i think it's worth just Taking the sober look at where you are, understanding your options, um, having freedom over your, how you want to fund your business, and making the best choice you can, which you know sounds like motherhood and apple pie, but it's really the best advice Yes. Um, rather than worrying too much about a delta to some period or some expectation you had that is probably irrelevant to the long-term success of your company.
0: So if I get what you're saying, if I'm an entrepreneur and I was thinking about raising money several months ago and I had this expectation that I'd be raising it, I'll just pull a number out of the air, $500 million. And now I'm talking to people and they're saying, well, you know, we'll value your business at $200 million. And I'm having this sort of valuation whiplash that's making me upset and angry. And however, it's making me feel what I think I hear you saying, Michelle is, Take a big deep breath. In the near term, those things are irrelevant. If you're building a legendary business, it all works out. That's what I think I heard you say.
1: Yes, and the sub point would be if you look at the last fifteen years of venture capital history, and you take out the last two, two hundred million for where you are might be a beautiful price. And so it's just like you know, what are you going to do? Amazon dropping from one thirteen to five dollars. Oh my gosh, is it the end of the world? No. And, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of founders who, because of the inflated expectations, are somehow disappointed. And it's like, if you look at the long term average, you've got some great partner willing to work with you at a very healthy valuation for where you are that will set the business up for future rounds at good prices and success. It may not be actually a bad offer just because it is different from an inflated period of time.
0: Yes. Do you also think the same thing's true uh, for a down round? You know, I've heard uh, people believe that a down round is like the worst thing that could happen to a startup. And then I've heard some people say, hey, listen, public company stocks go up and down. Shit's going to happen. We're playing the long game here. And if our last round was at 500 million and the entire world changes and we decide for one reason or another, we're going to raise money at 200 million, uh, is it what we'd like to do? Maybe not, but it's the right decision for the business. And the value of the company is going to fluctuate anyway, and so fuck it. Let's just do the deal and build the business and forget about some number on a piece of paper.
1: Yes, absolutely. When you think about fundraising, the only thing that is actually material is the percent of the company that you sell and the cash that you take in. That is all that matters. The, the valuation is made up. Like it does. It, it's of course related to those numbers, but. It doesn't matter. It has no bearing on anything. Just the way for a company, you can execute in the public markets all you want. You can beat and raise on revenue and EBITDA. The stock market is going to value you based on a number of factors, interest rates, sector you're in, you know, algorithms zooming around at night. Like at some point you just can't think about that. And so. The thing that is worth thinking about, of course, every founder is taking a lot of risk. They want to, you know, be paid for that. They want their team to, and so managing the dilution is an important and valid thing. That actually has no no relation necessarily. You could sell a much smaller piece of the company, right? So, to the to the valuation, and so we, you know, my partner Ravi Gupta, who's former COO and CFO of Instacart, has also been championed internally, like wishing that people thought about quote unquote down rounds differently because to your point just like a public company where the stock price changes private companies have this luxury where they don't have a daily price quotation and so you think that nothing in your world has changed but in reality if you were public it absolutely would have happened to everybody else and so getting over that idea that somehow it's necessarily bad for the company, I think it's it's not relevant. You know, manage the dilution, take in the cash you need, fund the business appropriately, but ultimately it doesn't matter. And and we're happy to go to to any company and talk about that uh, because again, the valuation at whatever step of the way has never determined the long term impact that it's had.
0: Yes. Uh, You also mentioned forecast scenarios. It sort of leads me to a question, which is, do you think that downturns favor experienced entrepreneurs more or does it not matter? And and the reason I ask you that question, when I was a younger man uh, going through, you know, I was in my early 30s during the dot-com boom. And I can remember specifically, I was at this company uh, called Scient that was actually a Sequoia-backed company. Leone was on the board. And, you know, we had we had clients, Michelle, we were essentially a consulting company in the, in the first wave of the dot-com boom, right? And we had some clients who were spending 4 or $5 million a month with us to build, quote-unquote, e-businesses. And in my naivete, as things started to shake, I thought, well... Nobody's going to go from spending $5 million a month on something they think is a huge strategic initiative for, for the company and just stop doing that. Well, holy shit, was I ever wrong? I mean, we literally had companies who were spending $5 million a month with us who just stopped. And so on this forecast scenario issue, you know, there's sort of, well, what's the worst case scenario? And what I've learned is once you do the worst case scenario planning, do the worst, worse, and the worst, worse, 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 and the worst, worse worse, worse <laughs> right like you have to get your mind around, hey wait a minute, maybe we're not able to see the full environment to your point earlier, and we have to be ready for a, a bunch of different scenarios and so I'm curious how you think about that and and does it matter whether or not we're first time founders or whether we're uh, you know experienced long time serial entrepreneurs in, in situations like this?
1: I think. Uh, either experience or just wisdom. There are many first-time founders who are really wise beyond their years of learned from all this past history to do it great. But I think those things will certainly help founders. I also think investors have to hold themselves to the same standard. One of the things that we recently talked about among the partnership and, and Ravi also made this point, having been at Instacart is, the worst thing is having an investor who gets jumpy and their fear infects the team and that infects everyone else. It's not helpful. It doesn't matter. Like it's, it doesn't lead to anything good. So between the management team, the investors, the board, don't overreact or get jumpy during this period of time. Just plan for things to be different than you expected. And to your point, you know, take the cold reality shower look at that plan maybe shave it down from where you want and also move quickly you know we got some flack for the black swan memo in covid trying to give founders that advice and then the fed printed you know 4 plus 5 trillion dollars and the advice looked not so good and maybe now it's coming back into fashion again but things change in the world and i think that's the the key is there's no need to get jumpy there's no need to you know, completely pivot. You don't need to act this minute, but you do need to plan this week and this month for a different environment and how you're going to to react to it.
0: Yes, and in that sense, uh, on a personal level, uh, you know it's it's so interesting, right? Because as a young man, I started my first company at 18, and I was in the, if you will, the the Luke Skywalker phase, right? And I never thought Love about. It anything other than the Luke Skywalker phase. I was trying to learn my lightsaber and all that stuff. Right. And then one day you wake up and you realize, Hey, you're not Luke Skywalker anymore. However, if you were successful as Luke Skywalker, the the prize you get is you get to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then of course, if you do a good job being Obi-Wan Kenobi, the prize you get is to be Yoda. And as a, as a man of a certain age, I, I can see all that now. And so anyway, (laughs) long story longer, Michelle, while the environment is not fun, what is cool, what is powerful is having some Obi-Wan Kenobi and being able to share that with a bunch of Luke Skywalkers to say, look, there's nothing that's going to happen in the next 24 months that's going to freak me out. I've been investigated by the SEC. I've been through all kinds of downturns. I, you know, I've had public humiliating failures. I, you name it. Right. So like, this is not going to freak me out. (laughs) And so uh, bringing that experience and hopefully some of that wisdom um, is a very, very powerful thing. And I I think you're right. You know, Mishai, you know, I don't talk to anywhere near as many entrepreneurs as you do, of course, but a lot of the native digital entrepreneurs that I know and respect and talk to, they are wise beyond their years and they do seek out Obi-Wans and Yodas and they do, they may not take all the advice, but I see this, uh, this sort of smart, reflective thinking amongst younger entrepreneurs who at least in my world are demonstrating uh, wisdom beyond their age. And, and, I don't know. I find that really cool. I don't know if that's broad-based or just my world. I'm I'm curious as to what you're seeing, particularly with younger entrepreneurs.
1: I think you probably attract a good set of people who value that. But I, I agree as well. I mean, it sounds trite to say, but I'm always, for the most part, incredibly impressed by the people that I meet and the founders and how thoughtfully they're trying to build. And I think you know, there's shows like Silicon Valley and other things and the WeWork. And there's this idea from people who aren't in this world that it's all full of, you know, crazy misadventures. And that's not the case. I think to your point, a lot of people work really hard. They care a lot about their teams. They want to do the right thing. They want to learn from people who've been through this. They want to learn from experience. And so I, I share your reverence for how wonderful this group is. And I think it's something that keeps me very optimistic. It's a very different type of job. I think when I reflect on different jobs I've had and and some jobs felt like you're trying to save these big companies from dying or help them grow a little bit faster. It's so different to spend all your days with people who are these genuine, smart people trying to make some corner of the universe better. Maybe they succeed and maybe they don't. But it's a beautiful way to spend the day.
0: (laughs) Couldn't agree more. Well, Michelle, clearly I could talk to you forever about lots of things. There are a whole bunch of other things I would love to touch on, but I want to be respectful of your time. I know entrepreneurs are banging on your door right now. And so um, is it to you? (laughs) Well, I'm mostly not in that business anymore. I'm trying to make a difference at scale through uh writing and podcasting more than I am through direct sort of advising and investing although I still do some as you know. Anyway, is there anything else you want to touch on Michelle before we wrap?
1: No, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and again, I share my utter shock that I should be in in this group of amazing people that you've had on your podcast, but I'm very glad to to be here and hope it was helpful in some way.
0: Very very helpful. I deeply appreciate your insight and uh Yeah, I love to talk to uh, legends, but I also really love to talk to legends in the making. And, you know... uh, Oh,
1: let's hope so. Fingers crossed, my friend.
0: Well, (laughs) you you show all the early signs, uh, Michelle, and I think um, hopefully uh, 10 years from now when you and I are uh, kicking back, uh, we'll be looking back on how you became one of the most important investors in Silicon Valley history.
1: (laughs) I would certainly owe you a beer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) first 12 rounds are on me.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Michelle Bailey. You can find her at sequoiacap.com. That's sequoia cap.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, Please share it with the people that you love and respect the most. And uh, you're listening to this uh on a podcast player. And that player has a share button. And if you press it right now, you can send it to those folks. And also know that we deeply appreciate your social media thoughts and shares. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to me and everybody here at uh, Follow Your Different. Don't forget your spouse texted and said, it's all right. Go ahead. Go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. Uh, my friends at one life fully lived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one life fully lived.org. If you're a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on some leading podcasts, check out my friends at interviewvalet.com. That's interviewvalet.com. And my friends at bottleneck.online are the first dedicated distant assistants. If you want, an assistant who's nowhere near you, who's a real person, and is never going to get anywhere near you, check out bottleneck.online today. And if you're in Silicon Valley and you want to build a legendary B2B website, check out my friends at atre.net. That's Atranet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. I want to thank you. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. And if by chance you're in the LA area and you want to do uh, some podcasting or you're looking for a legendary audio studio, check out Jason.FYI. That's Jason.FYI because he's opened the greatest studio now uh, for oddcasting in LA Sarah Knox and Jamie day do legendary technical execution and they build lockhead.com show notes by the handsome and talented GM Scient and the brothers Bobis EX and RJ do our web development and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design our law firm is weed and Jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind uh, and candy dandy keeps all the trains running on time remember to spread podcasts not viruses and you know We are at a time where the world needs more real conversation and real dialogue than ever. And don't forget, real dialogue podcasts are the only media where real conversation happens everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was betty white was right listen to tom waits uh love you mom and dad and hey colin this odd cast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go out to vladimir putin sorry Vladdy. we just ran out of time for you that's it my friend thank you so much please stay safe stay legendary and until we're together again follow your different